Today, I'm joined by Dana, Saria, Nikolai, and Surin to discuss how to ensure your teams operate effectively under pressure. So before we get into it, let's work our way around the room with some quick introductions. Dana, do you want to kick things off? Thank you, Sean. Um, so I'm Dana, Director of Engineering at Trustpilot based in Copenhagen and originally from Romania. Okay, Saria. Hello, I'm Saria. I am a business and integration architect manager at Accenture. I also lead our Nordic practice group for Salesforce sustainability. Great. Nikolai? I'm uh, Nikolai Stolung. I'm the head of data science at Trifork, a software company. Uh, and my responsibilities are managing and making sure the projects, they are delivered on time and on budget. Perfect. Søren? Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Søren. I'm the head of data and data science at Twill, a digital logistics company. Um, we are part of the, the wider Maersk group, if you will. And so uh, my job is really to make sure that that we have high performance teams that we're delivering good solutions as part of the, the wider Twill ecosystem. OK, great. So now that we have established a context to each of you, let's move on to the topic in focus. So you all have questions, scenarios or statements around how to ensure your teams operate effectively under pressure. And as usual, I'll work around the room with each of these questions and allow you to elaborate. So each of you will then have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. Okay, so Sören, let's start with you, as you want to discuss something that forms the foundations for working well under pressure, which is the idea of ensuring the right strategic anchoring. Do you want to go ahead with some questions and your own thoughts around this? Certainly. Yeah, so let me perhaps just put a few words to, to, to you know, how I see this as, as foundational, and that perhaps can be, can be a way into it. Um, so I think if you go back five, seven years, most of us probably experienced that you did a bunch of POCs and nothing really happened. All of a sudden, one project latched on and it worked really well, and it was effectively, you know, rubber band and, and duct tape, right? And two weeks later or two months later, something breaks somewhere, and you're basically all screaming, running around in circles because you're, you're not set up for success. Typically, neither from a, from an, say, an outcome or a business perspective, if you want to use that term, typically also not from an engineering or, say, service delivery perspective. So, um, indeed, the, 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 the topic I was curious to discuss here on the podcast was really how do we then make sure that we avoid this situation, not just from a technical perspective, but equally from a from an outcome delivery perspective. Um, so, I guess the one way to kick this off would be would basically be to to ask the question of so how do we even get this this right i call the strategic anchoring but how do you, how do you guys get that in in your setups how do you make sure that you're set up properly that you're not over committing at the same time you're trying to maximize the value you can deliver okay saria do you do you have anything you'd like to comment on this uh yeah i think this is a bit of a more of a big picture way of looking at a situation. I think most of us tend to look at stress at work very granularly, you know, people running on the ground panicking. But I think planning before and having good direction before always is the best way forward, right? So when I was thinking of strategic anchoring, the first thing that came to mind is, what is it that this person and in relation, their company, what is their core value or what are they working towards day to day? Uh, I think the way to go forward is as managers, as people who lead teams, first, we need to relay to people what is it that is most important to us in any given situation. So let's say we're two weeks in and the project is on fire. I think the most important thing for me, for example, or the company I work for is the people. So if we keep telling people that you're going to be fine. We have your back in any given situation. Uh, if you panic, there's someone you can lean on. If our core and my 
mind. If the core value is that there's someone you can lean on and that your core value is to do the best you can in any given situation. Um, I know it sounds a bit simple, but I think if it comes from high up top enough, people will feel less stressed going into a situation to start with, and they maybe end up planning with a clearer head, uh, asking more questions, asking for more help, rather than from the get-go getting into a situation alone and then leading more to a fire in the end. I guess that's my two cents to it. Yeah. Okay, Nikolai? Yeah, so I was um, I was I was thinking about this question, right? So what is a what is a good uh, what is a good strategic anchor, and do we ha even have it at Trifork? And uh, and my conclusion was we we really don't have strategic anchors because we're such a flat organization uh, that work with autonomous units uh, in 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 a very small uh, setup. Uh, so, so our management doesn't set a direction for us. We, of course, there's a there's something in our tagline saying we only build software that improves the world, uh, but that's a tagline, right? Uh, it's not really a, something that's pushed through the organization uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. But it, but then maybe that is the strategic anchor, right? Having making sure that well, you are small, you are you are effective, uh, and then you can actually move stuff, and uh, and then you. Kind of avoid some of the situations that would happen in large in large organizations with processes and and stuff like that. That that is uh, we we don't really have a, we're not a process heavy company. But then I looked at myself like okay, do I provide a strategic anchor? And yeah, I, I agree. So it's definitely a big big picture perspective. But I think you can map it into something that's a little bit smaller. We always start out our project with with having what we call productivity, which basically ensures that that you can be efficient throughout the project, but also making sure that whenever you hand over something to someone else, maybe in a situation where, where you need to do that to a customer or to someone else in, in, in the organization, then they can get everything up and running uh, fast, right? So you also avoid that. So I think you can map it into something that kind of smells like a strategic anchor, but but that was that was kind of my, 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 best, uh, my best thoughts on that, right? Yeah. And Dana? Yeah, um, for me, it goes back to having strategic goals or strategic OKRs, how you want to call them, and then also having the mechanism to cascade that to the team level. Uh, and that's a challenging job, uh, not easy at all. Um, so by strategic goals, I mean, you know, company-wide goals in regards to growth, in regards to impact, um, um, and then when it comes to cascading that, also giving the freedom to the teams to actually choose their own OKRs at team level that will have an impact on that strategic objective. Um, so I guess it's about a mix of having, um, yeah, a top down, but also bottom up approach at the same time. Yeah, Siren, anything else that you'd like to add? So actually, I think the the way you guys have all phrased it resonates. So we try to do something similar, but it is really to to marry the you know the overall strategic objectives with what can you deliver. Something that we're trying to articulate quite strongly is when is something a uh, a hard commitment and when is something more of a soft commitment. So you know soft commitments are things where we think it might work but really don't know. And obviously if it's a you know a high pressure uh, deliverable short timeline thing, obviously we we cannot really rely on those types of solutions, right? So I, to some extent, it goes without, or it should be fairly obvious, I guess. Uh, but but nonetheless, I find that um, 
you know, people still, at least some of my stakeholders, uh, still have have perhaps some some ideas about what should be possible that we sometimes need to sort of help them either either elevate or reduce. And so making sure that we agree at strategic level about outcomes is really what I find that that I need to um, you know, focus a quite deal of my time on simply to make sure that we're able to to deliver also under pressure. Yeah, great. And does anyone else have anything that they would like to add to this topic? Actually, one more thing, and uh, going back to um, what Sun's saying about, you know, agreeing on the actual principles or actual outcomes that we want, I think, touching that to what I was saying in the sense that also sometimes in bigger teams and massive implementations, you don't have access to all your people all the time to remind them of that. So I think also the the communication of these principles with them. And if that's not because in the environment I work in, for instance, consulting, sometimes it's super fast paced. I cannot blink fast enough to make things tra you know, travel to my team. And I think if they constantly have what we generally are working towards always, so, for example, at Accenture, we say we we have we're one team and we have the best individuals and, you know, our we respect the individual always. So I think if they have these thoughts always that, OK, if I have no direction right now, I need to do you know my best in what, what's given to me. I need to have stewardship towards the client. If I if they're constantly reminded of the strategy that is always applicable even if you're not there to have their back in the moment, I think that does support as well. And some workforces don't even have that access. And then you see employees completely confused, you know, like, I don't want to be fired. And then you're like, that's not, that's not going to happen. If you just knew how to, what we believe in, uh, you will, you will do fine. Yeah. So, so I was, I was really thinking uh, what you just said, Soria, is, is that we, we, we try to implement some way of giving our we call it developers but it can also be a be a project managers or someone who's not not non-technical designer we, we kind of force the idea of asking the people if they actually want to work on something uh, so you know try to try to try to make sure that they are aligned also to give them sort of a, an ownership but responsibility part of the project. And I think maybe that's also uh, where you're looking, Søren, and I see you all nodding here because we have video, but but it's uh, it's uh, it, it's something I, I think it's really, really important and it solves a lot of issues down the, down the road, right? You don't want to push people to work late, but if they feel responsible and they take ownership, they they, they tend to do if they if they uh, if if they if they feel like they have some stake uh, stake in it, right? So yeah. Okay. Anything else for that topic? I think I can add something. Um, um, also, Soren touched around having hard uh, commitments or soft commitments. I guess um, in in my world, a trust pilot we translate that as you either have uh, like a launch, a product launch, a feature launch, or you have experiments. Um, and if we try to, um, let's say, manage the expectations of our stakeholders and senior leaders with, okay, we commit on doing these experiments, uh, we could in the end influence the strategy and further commitments by those experiments. So I think it's a good approach. Okay, great. So uh, we'll move on to the next topic then. So we have Saria. You've proposed a scenario for the panel, which is what if your team is clearly about to burn out and has communicated as such, but they're essential, say an architect or a lead developer to your project and you're one month away from release. Let's hear what each of you would do in this instance. Uh, we'll start with Nikolai. 
Oh dear. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> Not an easy one. You're basically describing the uh, the cancer of project management, right? Uh, and this is a late stage cancer, so there's not a lot not, not a lot to do. Um, and it's a very hard question to answer. What would you do in that situation? I found that you know I never I never studied leadership or I never studied anything that's remotely related to uh, to human psychology. But I, I did really find that people are different. The people you're working with are different, and and I, and it's very hard to to come up with a solution. Uh, just in a general term, right? So uh, I, I can name a few examples. We've worked with a with a with a with, with a guy that that uh, that for some reason always started to show up late, right? And you, we could, you could start to see that there is something here that that's really not uh, a good thing. Uh, I've I've never experienced someone communicating it to me, but instead of instead of uh, you know telling him off, you have to show up to our dailies on time because of this and that. Then it's uh, then you know I, I tried to understand what is this person right so and I figured out that you know he's uh, he's uh, he's in this given situation right it's not appropriate for me to say right but 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 uh, instead of instead of just uh, ch choosing the, the tough management uh, the uh, point of uh, thing to do I, I tried to sit him down and 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 understand the situation uh, and uh, and everything's you know solved itself. Uh, because I allowed him to show up late because there was a good yeah, yeah. reason for it uh, instead of instead of doing something. But I've I haven't had one who burned out, so so it's it's all also very difficult for me to say. But I tried it twice myself, and uh, and I really found that if I didn't know what to do, I would start working in multiple directions, and I wouldn't I would, I would definitely burn out myself. Right. Mm -hmm. And Dana, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with Nikolai. Um, at this stage, probably it's a bit too late. So it's more about mitigating the situation and not really uh, solving it properly. So I think it's important to diagnose the pressure um, or the stress. As Nikolai said, people are different and they react uh, differently. So it's important to understand the root cause because based on that, uh, my actions would be different. For example, um, maybe the lead developer is, besides this one project, he's also handling or she's also handling a few other projects and maybe mentoring to junior engineers. So that is probably too much workload. So the action would be to reduce the workload. Or maybe it's very difficult to make decisions in that project. So that would require, um, yeah, to simplify the decision making process. I guess another way to look at it is to review the deadline. Um, maybe you can push the deadline, but then also lock or even remove scope. Uh, so ensure that there is no scope creep to, to that initiative. Um, yeah, and I think I would be very transparent in my communication with uh, senior stakeholders and uh, parties that are interested in that project and really explain the situation as it is and uh, yeah, the risk that we have. Afterwards, uh, of course, I would recommend taking time off and not one day, but uh, yeah, a longer period. Yeah, so I think there's already been two really strong answers to this question, right? So I think I can perhaps build on those a little bit. So to, to, to the shared point here, I think it really comes down to the person uh, who is undergoing this and, you know, personal values on, on your part as, as a manager. 
ideally extending to something you would do to your organization uh, getting behind as well. Again, there can be multitudes of reasons for this, and I would really agree to the point of saying we need to come at this from a people first perspective, understand what's driving it and how do we best get in there and help. And there can be, you know, Dana already listed multitude of, of, of reasons and potential solutions, right? I think it's it's really about I think the mindset I would I would bring to, to this situation and I have brought to situations like this is to say it's not your responsibility, it's a shared responsibility. And that's really important because when you find yourself in those situations, if as say the 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 affected party, um, let's say, uh, you, you know, you're overwhelmed, and that's kind of the part of 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 how you're you're trying to you're unable to deal with the situation because it's overwhelming by nature, right? So, making taking that leap of saying this is not a leap, sorry, taking that that step and saying this is a shared responsibility, and you coming in with transparency, as mentioned before, but really saying we're coming in to find a way to resolve this situation together. Is is also certainly how I, I would do this. And Jeff, just one more thing. I think there's also a a behavioral aspect to this, which can be you know making sure you're communicating this more broadly, uh, but also yourself not you know shooting out emails in the middle of the night, shielding that individual, trying to reduce what what that that individual is is, is exposed to, making sure that conversation is also had with the relevant stakeholders, so that they also remind themselves that you know there's a behavioral side, you know. It doesn't really work out. We say, you know, we want to help you and just we keep hammering away at them, right? Oh, yeah. Also, the the, the dimension of this being a quite important person to the team, uh, architect or, or lead developer, yeah. also puts a lot of pressure on the person itself, right? Because if they say, well, I'm going to go on sick leave uh, now and I'm leaving uh, this moment, then that's also a, a, a tough situation for them because they know that especially in IT, and you guys know that, right? It's really hard to find someone stashed somewhere who can actually take over that role. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, we, are we are completely exposed to that situation. Uh, so, yeah, definitely, you know, trying trying to mitigate the situation by understanding what the person is going through without it being like dangerous management uh, psychology psychologist uh, thing uh, is, is really important. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why people would, would burn out. It could be work, but it could also be personal stuff. So uh, yeah, definitely people first, like you say, so yeah. Yeah, and you, Saria, what, what's your opinions then on your yeah, I guess, scenario? I guess when I put this out, it's because particularly in technology and IT, this is very often, and I, as Nikolai said, even if people think like, oh yeah, you're working on Oracle or that customer, or micro, yeah, but people aren't so, they, a project is a unique entity. It is a snowflake in that sense and cannot be replaced. I think when I was giving this scenario, uh, it does come from two perspectives, right? And I pride myself to work people first and work for a company that thinks we work people first. And the two scenarios that I can think of is one, that person is very valuable to you, but they stood up and came to you and said, Donna, I am burning out. I can't do this anymore. Point. I think in that situation, there's only one way to do it. That person is burned out and they're telling you. So there is no, there is no other way to do it. They're done. They can't do it anymore. I think in that regard, once once you recognize that in a human perspective, the added advantage that we have in that position is that that person is coming to tell you. So you may be able to, fingers crossed, take a day and say, okay, can I just give you one day to hand over to the best or suggest the best person or yada yada. You might be able to buy 
a bit of time just because they came and told you. So the scenario that they are staying is off the table, but then they might help you bring someone else. So I think in that in that situation, you need to get that person off because also if they're telling you I am about to burn out is another scenario because if you don't listen to them, well, then they burn out and you're without an architect and a, and a lead. So it is always, and as Nikolai is saying, you need to listen to them. But in the second scenario, what I would do is they're a lead developer, they're a lead uh, they're an architect, they're someone who holds a lot of knowledge, I would go up to my PMO. If I have the power, I would do it, but I would go up to management. I would transparently say, we have a vital person in the team without sharing much of their personal information. And I don't know where you get it from, but you need to get me more budget for more resources. This is not their problem. This is not our problem. The project will will struggle without it. So get us more help and just kind of shave things off their minds so that this is the only thing they have to focus on. Um, but I think we all agree on it. But also, we're working with people and we're working with volatile environments. So there is really no one answer. Um, and if I am not their personal manager, so it, at Accenture, we have people we, we call people leads. So they report to me, but I'm not their project manager. I would go to their people lead and try to understand, as Nikolai was saying, is there something personal? Can we work around it? Can we still keep them within their capacity? So, yeah, I think the bottom line is just, working with people as people uh, instead of just prioritizing the old school way prioritizing the project like uh, the last thing i would do is can you give me 10 more days just hold through the month hold through the month because they will burn out next morning so yeah there's one thing that just to add a little bit in here that i would kind of think about myself is how would you feel in that situation is how i would look yeah. at it if i was burning out yeah how would i want people to react is how i know i'm never really the type of person high up enough to to deal with that but I think that's what's important is remembering everyone's human this does happen and that kind of thing so yeah it's a really interesting scenario to bring up and obviously it's a it's a difficult one it's an awkward one for anyone and everyone but you just have to try your best to understand and that's about all you can do and I think we need to remember that this person is staying after the project so you would hope to keep them afterwards so <laughs> yeah. you need to deal with it in a situation that this is temporary even the project is temporary but their career at your company hopefully is for years. So you can't really like squeeze them to the last job. Yeah, exactly. Anything anyone else would like to add then? Great, okay, we'll move on to our third question, which is Dana. Uh, so you've asked as a leader, what can you do now to better equip your teams to handle future pressure situations? Do you wanna elaborate a little bit for us? Yeah, so um, in, my, in my eyes, pressure situations are not only testing teams and team members, but they're also testing, um, um, let's say, the, the tools that developers use to develop and ship code. So if you figure out that, you know, during an initiative or under pressure project, your engineers are spending time to get some sort of permissions or get access to different data sets or just struggle to push code to production, then um, yeah, you're, we are not helping the team to succeed. So I think uh, it's it's really important to invest in all things developer experience and provide self-service and easy to use solutions to your engineers so they can ship or move fast in pressure situations. Yeah, okay, sir. Yep, 
Sure. So it's actually interesting that you went that direction because when I was thinking about this question, these were actually things that I had listed down as well. So indeed, I think the way I would think about this is there are kind of two main buckets. One is sort of in the skills and process side, and then another one is in, say, personal resilience. But if we just briefly touch on, on skills and process, right? Um, I think on the skill side, obviously, we can as we as individuals improve in their craft, they can typically cover more and they're better equipped to overlook more complex projects that in itself is a benefit and can help you in the future. Another thing, at least that we're also thinking about is making sure we have overlapping skills and responsibilities. You know, we don't have the don't want to have the boss factor of one. We want to make sure people can take time off and all that sort of stuff. But exactly on the process side, that's I think what you what you just spoke to, Dana, and I completely agree. How do we make sure that our our infrastructure, that our processes are set up to support these things. So, you know, basics, do we have CID, CICD in place? Do we have testing in place? And you can kind of evolve this, right? Accesses, um, how is our review process? What's the speed of the review process? Something that we actively measure is whenever we have a new joiner, what is the time it takes for them to commit their first or have their first line of code in production? Like, because we know that that stress tests all accesses, but also we just want to make sure that they can actually put stuff out, right? As a developer also, you feel wonderful because now you're actually empowered and you feel equipped to actually do your job. Um, and then, you know, uh, just the, the final thing I think I would just add to this is this personal resilience thing. Uh, we can stress test or you can stress test these things, right? You can you can imagine, you can try to say, okay, now let's let's try, we, let's run the, the test that we want to deploy something in a week, right? How do we do this? Can we do this even? I think some people do this thing they call what they call it, I think chaos testing, right? Where they randomly try to turn off various components and see what is the overall impact of that. So obviously this starts getting into your whole monitoring setup and all that stuff. Uh, but also again, from the personality perspective, how do people deal with these things is 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 the aspect. And again, maturity coaching and support is is the way forward there. So again, to me, just summarizing, it's really a combination of tooling skills and then also skills not being just hard skills but very much also soft skills and self-management yeah great nikolai what do you think yeah it's um it's uh it's a really good question i i i'm, I'm quite impressed with uh with what both of you both of you guys are saying um i haven't thought about it that much we we do uh we we mostly most we build our projects in sort of a in very small iterations and we start by building something we call a prototype and then we start we move it to production as soon as possible with ai and data science it's 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 you know it's a little bit of a down and upwards uh, battle to towards getting stuff into production uh, so we we start out by saying well how how far can we go when we are uh, if we have these resources that we have right now so is that even a possibility and we start to map up that early so can we do our, our, do we have the tooling that's uh, that's in place? Uh, do we have the right people uh, to, to to run this project? Uh, and that's where that's kind of where we are and where I am in in my uh, in my in my level here, right? So uh, so I, I really liked your answers and those really inspired me. Yeah. Great, Sarian. Uh, I think uh, looking at it from because I had also taken note down for like reducing noise and training them on resilience and all that, but but. I think taking it also back to my work environment. So we work in high pressure, 
varying changes. Literally no two projects look the same. It could be on one project where it's completely Accenture. It could be something that is, uh, we're working, worst case scenario, right? Working with competitors on the same project and people are just set up to be more stressed. You're also in new environments. So it's not like we could create a lot of reusable material. We could, we can create a lot of reusable maybe use cases, but material in terms of like uh, testing codes and we and scripts, we can't really reuse them, right? So I think what I could think of here, and this has benefited me in the past, and I have ex extended this courtesy to a lot of my colleagues, is expanding your network in the company and in your practice group to know who knows what, and hopefully they will be friendly enough to give you a bit of their bandwidth at some point. So by that, I mean, if uh, you know that in future, in Salesforce, right? There are different clouds. So I don't know X cloud and it's brand new, but I know CERN has recently gotten certified in it. And I know my client is about to buy that. So me knowing who knows what at what point also gives me the padding that I am not alone. And I would hope most work environments are, uh, you know, encouraging this, that, you know, we are one. We say we were one Accenture. So we're one. I could even call up someone, and I have, in Germany or in the U.S., because on that particular case, I just wrote in a chat in Teams, like, guys, can someone help out with this? I don't want to reinvent the wheel. And that in and of itself, when someone sent in that scenario or that PowerPoint slide or that test script, uh, just knowing who holds what material and who holds what knowledge is also a very good preparation for reducing future stress. Um, that is, in my opinion, and I've used that resource a lot in my in my career. Yeah. Any more opinions on this one? Yeah, I guess I can add also probably similar with um, what Soren and Sarya shared. Um, so besides the um, the tooling part and uh, like the soft skills, the resilience skills, um, for me it's also important to. Let's say nurture a culture of ownership within the team. So, you know, with stressful situations, no matter how much you prepare, there will be surprises and there will be unknowns. So it's important in those moments that the team members to help each other, to not blame each other, uh, to understand the urgency, focus on that, yeah, and and then uh, run a retrospective or a postmortem or. And I guess just just picking up on that, I think just essentially fostering a culture uh, where where people really like each other will be super supportive of this, right? I mean, sure. I've I've been very fortunate that the the team I I took over in Twill they they're just generally just great people, and you know you just want to spend time with them. There's one, and they're just naturally super helpful. And so whenever we find ourselves in these situations, it's not it's never a challenge for people to sort of take ownership and, and really just, you know, commit to solving the problem, even though it means staying late. It's just, it comes so natural to them. Yeah, I really, you know, we we um, we have a lot of remote work, right? So 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 we, uh, in my office, I only have one sitting here. Uh, other people are sitting elsewhere in Europe. So most of the deliveries that we do are remote. So what you're saying, Sand, is like, I, I would think, was thinking, well, we, we never really meet each other, right? We only meet each other on Teams or Zoom. Uh, but, but then I found that, you know, establishing clear communication and who talks to who on what and who does what, who has a responsibility for, for things. And, you know, try to remove Jira and the whole project board thing from the equation. And they say, okay, let's try to communicate and talk. And let's, uh, let's uh, initiate that early on. 
so we we get that and that's 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 because we don't meet we don't really meet each other right some of my team members only met once but i've been working with them for four years so so you know uh, so so i think that's where we're putting it right we just like who's talking to who who's doing what and uh last thing to add also on both what dan and Sun said was the fostering part of liking each other and asking each other and taking ownership i i recently got uh one of my people on a project on my current client actually on the previous slide because i just got on a new client uh telling me and i was talking to her in that situation i was saying don't worry you're one person team for this phase of the project but you know you have a big team sitting there in the office who knows all of this that you can ask and her response was she's a bit new and she she was saying that but wouldn't that reflect badly on me that I'm asking something and I think it's also very important in future pressure or whatever pressure situation and when we're saying transparent communication to keep in mind how old is that person in your company but also their own culture from the world and everything because it looks different for different people for, for example in that second I it took me a heartbeat to think because in my mind I was like that sounds a bit silly like who would but then no it doesn't sound a bit silly it depends where I'm coming from because it some people some people would say no but I'm I'm being put here because I know things if I ask someone else then I don't know it but I think that is at the end of the day we're all a single team and we didn't no one knows everything and you should foster this reality of that's actually it's a good thing if you go and ask someone else on the team for help and you're contributing to this culture in the team. Yeah, it's kind of like creating a, mis a culture of mistakes, right? It's okay to... It's okay, it's okay to, exactly. To, We're here to catch you. Up <laughs> ...and to say that, you know, I don't know this. Can someone help me? Uh, and what you're saying to me, uh, what you're asking me to do, I don't understand that. And, and it's, it's not a given that people will, will, especially with young new graduates, because they think, well, he hired me or she hired me because... Uh, I'm good at this stuff or I know this stuff, but the reality is that we all understand that you are new and we have to develop you and develop your career, right? And they don't always know that. So like, uh, yeah, uh, culture of mistakes. So. Yeah, and we always say that you can only learn from mistakes, I suppose, at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, so finally, we'll move on uh, to Nikolai. Uh, so for your topic, you want to discuss small teams versus large teams in a tight deadline environment. Do you want to explain a little bit more for us? Yeah, sure. Um, so there, are, I think there are multiple dimensions here. Um, and uh, and there are definitely two schools uh, on how you how you build uh, like big implementations. Uh, but I think the the two dimensions that I definitely see is that you have a tight deadline. Do you choose a small team or a large team? Do you really stack up on people and you know and and uh, and and uh, and experience the impact you know on just like managing your large group of people who probably don't know know each other because you have a tight deadline and all the stuff is probably not all the foundational work is not being set up correctly early on. Or do you choose like a small team, right? A team that uh, that can be efficient with the right people. But then there's also do you split up the large team and create a lot of small teams and like create so silos? And uh, personally, I've been part of a one big team once and I hated it. <laughs> uh, and that's just me, right? That's my personality. I, I don't like to step on people's toes. Uh, and now I only run small lean teams, like max four people per, per project. But then I, I silo it, right? And then on one project, I might have three teams. One is doing this and they often don't really talk to each other because for me, I think it's about setting the objective, but I think it has implications on communication. Uh, smaller teams could tend to deliver slower, uh, you know, so there's a lot of balance here and I would like to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, okay. Saria, do you want to start us off? 
Yeah, of course. Uh, I think I there's always when I hear this, there's always a joke in my mind that, uh, you know, agile is the way of going, except we're doing waterfall and agile. So <laughs> but I think I think there's something to be said about the benefits of the agile thing that it got to the world, which is I do agree on the smaller team thing, uh, but I also do adopt the coordination across teams. So I think one of the most valuable right now, my project is running in waterfall. I have not let go of the morning scrum that is still going because we have a small team of testers, small team of developers. They're siloed, as you said, but there is an overarching connect and they know what they're going towards. I think to keep it short, but in my expertise, larger teams tend to get lost more, get confused more. They tend to, again, that is not a blanket statement, just from my expertise. They tend to also procrastinate a bit more because you have a lot of other cushions to rely on. So if I don't do it, someone else will pick it up. And also from a human perspective, they tend to get a bit um, like they get distracted and a lot of other things start coming up. Some people might not have good chemistry to, uh, together at work. Some people might not want to work together, so on and so forth. So I think the smaller group is something I would go towards. And in my personal expertise, I also always try to, even from the initiation, from hiring people, I try to hire people with clearly, you know, core skills, but they are also flexible and multi-skilled, at least soft skill wise. And they have a lot of transferables so that in that said small team, if a given day I need someone to, you know, take care of something different, they're able to support or jump into a slightly different role if needed. Um, so yeah, I think smaller teams are just built innately to adapt faster, particularly to a fast paced, uh, and it takes less time to communicate with them as well if a change comes in. Yeah, great, Siren? Yeah, so when I was thinking about this, I think the two dimensions that are that I would consider core is like sense of ownership or ability to take ownership on the one dimension and the other being essentially decision-making speed. I think those are the two things that, that that I would sort of look at this or the lens that I would look at this through. So, you know, I've seen large teams function really well. I've seen large teams fail miserably, and I've seen the same with small teams. But but what I come back to is is really these two dimensions. So if there's if we can if we have clarity of ownership, and can you can distribute that if it's a larger team, and if we can keep up a a high decision making speed uh, or ability then I, th I think that those are the two things I would be looking at, irrespective or, or large and small. And also, obviously, I recognize that that, that uh, different settings can vary significantly, but but like in terms of, of, of control parameters, those would, would be my two. Yeah, Dana? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, and probably I'm, I'm leaning towards small teams because that's mostly my expertise. I've, I've always been working with small teams and chose uh, this option. Um, but I think uh, Soren has a good point. It could, I, both options, small or large teams, could yeah ensure success or failure. Um, and um, with the small teams, um, I think it's getting complicated when, let's say, you have five small teams that all have to work on a single product launch. So then, yeah. Um, ownership, coordination, decision-making uh, could become messy. So I, I think it, it's more important to focus on that part and not necessarily on like, what's the size of, of each team. And I think in that regard, if uh, like there are, 
I, I think it may not be even different teams if it's just split in responsibilities. So maybe like a few people carry one responsibility and a few others carry another. So they are a figurative team of their own, even if they are part of a bigger department. Um, so I think personally, I agree 100% with what CERN is saying. And then if I needed to amend that, it would then be maybe small, small buckets of responsibility across smaller team of people or group of people instead of something a single thing like a deployment of a single integration multiple cloud software for a whole team and it's all across um i think i think that's that's what i think would work if someone owns it and then it's distributed exactly yeah, what you guys are saying it, it, it makes me think of you know when you know when i was a kid i played football when we moved from a small field to a large field we would get more team members right and and uh, you know when you start up on the large field, you start everybody just runs around like it's a complete <laughs> mess, right? And uh, and then but then you get older and people start to understand what their role, what their position is on the team, and then things start to move more move more smoothly, right? You have your zones, you have who you're going to cover, and all that stuff. So may add that, that just came to my mind when you when you said that. So uh, so I think that's a good way of seeing it. Maybe it's not, but <laughs> let's see. No, but no, just no, picking up on that. Oh, sorry, but but just picking up on that, right? I, I think you know that's also why it takes so long for teams to really gel, right? You see, with any sport, right? If you're in team sport, whenever you're adding new players, especially key players, it takes time for teams to really, you know, find their their new style, their new modus operandi. Even with a change of coach, sometimes, right? So I know I think I think the analogy is very apt. And yeah. it is, it is very scrum, right? Because scrum is football, right? It, it it does take you even the first three to four to five sprints to decide on what is the actual velocity of a team. Because first week they don't know each other, second week they don't know what they're doing, third week they're figuring it out. So so it's like they it does take a cadence until you know the people around you, you know their strengths and weaknesses, and trust them, whether in sports or in tech. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree there. That's something that I can add some knowledge in on is the sports side of things, being a hockey player myself. Well, and I do remember in, in sports, right? <laughs> <laughs> I do I do remember myself going from that small pitch to a large pitch and doing that running about where like a maniac, basically, I would say, probably. Um I'm sure we can relate that back to tech, yes. Um but yeah, so I think that's everything for today then. Does anyone have anything else that they would like to add? No? Great. Okay, so we will leave it there. Um, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you all, Nikolai, Søren, Saria, and Dana, for providing some really great insights into our topic today. Hopefully, each of you can take something away from our discussion, as well as our listeners, of course. Um, so if you would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at shan.vance at evolution-nordics.com. I hope you've enjoyed listening. This has been the Evolution Exchange Podcast. Thank you.